Well, if you will, go ahead and open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26 and also 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to read three separate portions of Scripture. And once you find it, you can stand to your feet. Matthew 26 and 2 Corinthians 7. What we're going to do today is look back at these portions that I skipped over last week. Dealing with Peter and Judas. So I'll read from Matthew 26 and then I'll skip over to chapter 27 and read of Judas and then we'll flip and look at 2 Corinthians 7. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Chapter 27, verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, well, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. And now 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. This is God's word and I believe God's inerrant and infallible interpretation of his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your willingness to speak to us and to give us understanding. We believe, oh God, that you want us to understand your word. You want us to know you. And so you've revealed yourself and you've spoken to us. And so we thank you for your word and we ask that now you would continue to do that work of revelation. That your spirit would come and give us understanding. I pray that it would be more than just an intellectual understanding of words and phrases. 
But it would be a spiritual understanding of spiritual truth that makes effectual spiritual and eternal realities. God, I pray for the unconverted in this room that you would use these stories and and the, the account of these men as a mirror. That every one of us would look at this as a mirror that reveals to us our own need. And Father, I pray that we would not walk away and forget what we've seen, but we would be found doers of the Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. By way of introduction, I want to just lay out a biblical principle. And then I want us to keep that principle in mind and we're going to lay it over or see it really displayed in what we've read. And that's the, the principle of promises and warnings. Throughout Scripture, we see God coming to men and giving them promises and warnings. Now, very often, we only think about blessings and curses, which, if we want to get technical with God, these are synonymous, for His promises are are blessings, His warnings are curses. The blessing is very often the outworking of the promise. The curse is the outworking of the warning. God, and both of these are looking forward. A promise looks forward. A warning looks forward. When I was little, I would always, Dad would ask me if I had done something, and I would say, yes, are you sure? Yes, I promise. And he would always say, a promise is something you're going to do. It looks forward. Not backwards, but forward. Promises and warnings are both that way. They have in mind the future based on what's happening now. So we see this throughout Scripture. God comes, He reveals Himself, He gives promises and blessings, or promises and, and warnings, and then men are held accountable for how they deal with that. In the Garden of Eden, the very first man, God comes. Here's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now implied in that is the promise, if you don't eat it, you'll live. And that's also implied by the tree of life. Here's the promise and the blessing. If you will will obey, if you will abstain, don't eat from the tree, you will live. There's a promise of life. Life is the blessing. But there's also the warning. In the day that you eat of it, you're going to die. There's promise and warning. We see this in the very next generation with Cain. Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? There's the promise. If you obey, you'll be accepted by God. But if you do not obey, sin is crouching at the door. Your task, Cain, is to rule over it. If you don't rule over it, it's going to rule over you and you're going to be cursed. There's the warning. Obey, blessing. Disobey, curse. In Deuteronomy 27, we see probably the greatest uh, physical picture of this where you see the people of Israel on these two mountains. Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And God God through Moses has preached the law again and... God promises, if you will obey, here are all the blessings. But He warns, if you disobey, here are all the curses. He reveals Himself, and then through that self-revelation, He gives, and either implied or states explicitly in His law, the standard that He expects men to live by. Here are the promises of blessing, if you live according to My standard. Here are the curses... Or the warnings of curses if you disobey. And the people are responsible with what they do with that. In every situation, men are responsible for what they do with what God has revealed. Now we can add to that another layer. All of us are sinners. All men are born sinners. So we're not born with a clean slate where we, we're, we're only dealing with whether or not we might find ourselves in obedience or disobedience. We all find ourselves having already fallen short of the glory of God. We've already 
fallen short of His standard of holiness. So now we are responsible not only to act in accord with what God has already revealed, we're also responsible for how we respond to the fact that we're already sinners. God has revealed Himself. He also, in revealing Himself, reveals to us ourselves. And He says, here are some blessings that I will promise if you will repent. Blessings will come. But be warned, if you will not repent of, those, of your sins, only curses. Mm -hmm. So we have sort of a two-tiered responsibility now, not only with our nature, but also with what we deal with or, how, or how, what we do with the sin that is already ours uh, implicitly. Now what I want to do today is look at Peter and look at Judas as examples of that same principle. I want to look at their actions. I want to compare their actions with one another, contrast their actions with one another, and, and try to figure out what the difference is. See, one of these men that we just read about is in heaven right now. Mm -hmm. And one of them is in hell right now. Yeah. He has been suffering the torments of hell already for almost 2,000 years. And he's barely, he hasn't even stepped over the threshold of eternal torment. Right. The difference between these two men is of eternal significance. And so I want to try to draw that out. In a hundred years from now, every person in this room will either be with Peter in the presence of Christ or in eternal torment with Judas. In a hundred years. I'm, I'm in my 33rd year. If I live to be 99 point whatever, I've already exhausted over a third of my life. We don't have long. Time is getting shorter and shorter and shorter. The... the, the Sunset of life is closer every single day if, perchance, we all get to live long, full lives. Which in a, in a, in a room this, just this size, it's not very likely that all of us are going to live long, full lives. In less than a hundred years, we're all going to either be with Peter or with Judas. So the difference in these two men is, is very important. So let's look at Peter. Beginning at verse 69, it says that he was standing outside in the courtyard. Now, I didn't read today, but back over in verse 58, it said that Peter had followed Jesus at a distance to see what would be the end, what would be the end of the matter, how this was all going to turn out. And if you read John's gospel, he doesn't name himself, but... The picture is that John, because he was sort of friends with those of Caiaphas' household, John let Peter into this courtyard. So John and Peter are probably together. And now he's sitting inside the courtyard of the high priest. Brave and boastful and self-confident Peter once fled. It said all of the disciples left him and fled. Then these two probably kind of circled back around to follow at a distance, not to get taken up in this entourage leading Jesus to uh, in his arrest. And now he sits at a distance, quietly watching to see what's going to happen. The one who previously said, I'll go to prison and to death with you. And now he's withdrawn himself and he sits at a distance and it says that a servant girl came up to him and said you also were with Jesus the Galilean but he denied it before them all there's obviously a group here he denied it before them all saying I do not know what you mean so just take note this is a servant girl no intimidation here there are other people before, before the disciples. He was proud. He was boastful in the, in the garden. He was brave enough to draw his sword in the presence of Roman officials and, and Sanhedrin officials and cut off Malchus's ear. But now, in the presence of this servant girl, he, he denies for the first time that he even knows who Jesus is. I do not know what you mean. So he gets up and he goes to stand somewhere else. It says he went... When he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and she said to the bystanders, 
This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. This is obviously the talk of, of this household at this point. They're all discussing Jesus of Nazareth, wondering why he's being brought in the night. What, what, what is this ruckus? And so she points him out. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. With an oath, that would be very similar to us saying, I swear. I don't know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. You talk like a Galilean. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. Very similar to, and we don't do this very often with, in seriousness, but we would say things like, If I'm lying, I'm dying. I, I swear on my grave. And so we see that the language and Peter's insistence intensifies. It, it is not as though a, a, a regular reminder or, or three opportunities breaks him down to where he eventually says, Okay, uh, you're, you're right, I, I was with him. But it actually hardens him in his denial to the point of swearing and invoking a curse on himself. And it says that as he utters this last denial, immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. In Luke's account, he tells us that somehow in the situation of, of the, the, the court of the high priest and where... Peter was, that Jesus actually turned and looked at him. Yeah. And there was a, an eye contact in this moment that, that said something to the effect of probably, didn't I tell you that this would happen? And Peter realizes what he's done. And it says he went out and wept bitterly. This is probably the supreme, one of the supreme biblical examples of the proverb Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Peter was so proud, so boastful, so strong in, in just a few hours ago. Though they all fall away, I will never fall away. These guys, sure, Lord, but not me. And Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And that's what Peter has just done. If we trace out the scene, his... Boastful self-confidence produced a lack of prayer. It led him to not feeling the need for God. And so he doesn't pray. And that's what a lack of prayer always is. If you're not praying, it's because either practically or by profession, you don't believe that you need God. So he didn't pray. Then his, his lack of prayer and his lack of waiting upon the Lord causes him to lash out in zeal and cut off Malchus's ear and... and out of his embarrassment, the Lord saying, put your sword away. And having to undo what Peter had done, he flees Christ's side. And then he, from that point on, follows from a distance. And now he will not so much as even deny or identify with his Lord. Now we read this and we wonder, how could he do it? I mean, sure, things are getting intense how could he go this far? But you've done it. And I've done it. Peter did it three times. I, I would imagine some of us have been guilty of doing it three times a day. Denying, either practically or even verbally, that we do not even know the Lord Jesus. By being silent about our Lord. Because we fear the praises of men. Or we, we fear their, their scowls. And we want their praises. And so we don't say what we know we should say. That is denying the Lord. That is denying the very master who bought you. When we keep quiet about biblical truth. Because it might offend somebody. When we have heard or seen the name of Christ blasphemed. And we say nothing especially by professing Christians. That is denying Christ. And so we wonder, oh, Peter, how could you do this three times? And that's nothing compared to where we all stand. At least Peter had the wherewithal to go out and weep bitterly. Very often we don't even do that. And this 
interestingly, is the last we read of Peter in Matthew's gospel. We don't see him again. He's gone. The last words we have, he went out and wept bitterly. And I don't, I don't have any doubts that some of Matthew's original audience would have probably been Christians in Jerusalem, Jewish converts. Peter would have been one of their elders. And so I, we could surmise as to why Matthew doesn't go any further. Maybe he figures, well, I'll, I'll let Peter tell the rest of the story. Amen. But here it's just tears. And that's Peter. So then look at Judas. We've seen Judas betray Christ with a kiss. Jesus has been taken. He's been tried. They have condemned him. At least at this point, Judas knows that he's condemned to death. And so it says, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. And brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Now think about it. They had sought false testimony. Judas didn't come forward. Now Judas comes forward with real testimony. First-hand eyewitness testimony. I was with the man for three years. I saw all that he did. I heard all that he taught. Here's real testimony. But they don't care about that. Peter, or, or Judas rather, changed his mind upon realizing that what he had done was going to lead to the condemnation of Christ. He changed his mind. He brought the money back. I don't want it. I want to undo this. Let's undo the deal. He confessed his sin to the religious leaders. I have sinned. And he even professes the innocence of the man Jesus. What we see of Peter is a, a much bigger show than... Or what we see of Judas is a much bigger show than, than what we saw from Peter. Peter, tears. Judas, it's like he wants to undo the whole thing. He wants to take it all back. He realizes he's done wrong, and, but it's too late. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. They've used Judas for what they needed Judas for. They're done with Judas. Or Peter, rather. No, this is Judas. They've used Judas. They're done with Judas. They don't care about justice, you see. What is that to us? True testimony? We're not seeking true testimony. We want blood. We need false testimony. So see to it yourself. You, you go and deal with that however you feel you need to. But that's not important to what we're trying to accomplish here. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. Judas exemplifies utter hopelessness. He is in such anguish over what he's done that he despairs of life itself. Now, in the book of Acts, Peter uses Psalm 109 and he applies it to Judas. Listen to Psalm 109 as it talks about the one who would betray Christ. It says, For he did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted to put them to death. He loved to curse. Let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing. May it be far from him. He clothed himself with cursing as his coat. May it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. May it be like a garment that he wraps around him, like a belt that he puts on every day. This is, this is a prophetic description of what happened to Judas as he's realizing what he's done. He is cursed of God. Yeah. And the curse and the terror of God, the way the psalmist describes it, it's almost like it soaks into his bones. It's, it's deep and penetrating. The torture in his soul wraps around him like a robe. It, it engulfs him in aggravated, agonizing despondency. He can't get away from it. He can't get off of him. It's, it's as deep as it could possibly get. 
And Judas probably literally runs, to use the language of Scripture, headlong into hell. Mm -hmm. Because he realizes his sin. Because he realizes that he is a sinner and has sinned grievously. So he goes and he hanged himself. He commits suicide. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. Ironically, all of a sudden, they care about what is lawful. They didn't mind that it was blood money when they took it out of the treasury to pay Judas. But now they want to pretend this, give this lip service to the law. And so it says, They took counsel and bought with them, that is, the pieces of silver, the potter's field, as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. This is Matthew's commentary. Then was fulfilled what was spoken, or what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set, by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now, that's actually a quotation from Zechariah chapter 11. And if you want to talk about why Matthew references Jeremiah, we can do it over lunch. But in that passage in Jeremiah, where this is taken directly, the picture is you have an unappreciated shepherd. The shepherd has come to shepherd a flock of sheep that is doomed to slaughter. And he begins to do some good work. He kills a few of the bad shepherds, but it's almost as if he realizes that his work is not being appreciated. They, they don't want to be shepherded by a good shepherd. And so he, he sort of resigns his post. And he says, if you want to pay me, then... That's fine, but if you don't, that's fine too. And they almost mockingly pay him the price of a dead slave as, as, a, as a, a mockery of his shepherding. And so he hands this flock doomed to slaughter over to their unfaithful shepherds. He breaks the covenant that he's made with them. He breaks the covenant between Israel and Judah. And that's a picture of what is happening here. Christ has come to try to shepherd these people. He has tried to release them from their cruel shepherds and they didn't want it. As a matter of fact, it was a mockery to them and they considered him worth nothing more than the price of a dead slave. And so he says, fine, you can have your cruel shepherds. And they considered him worth nothing more than the price of a dead slave. And this is all we see of Judas. In Matthew's Gospel. Here we have the end of Peter and of Judas. Now I believe Matthew, what he's doing is trying to, for his audience, reveal more of the hypocrisy that had taken place. His readers and may have had family members who said, come back to the faith. That man Jesus, one of his own disciples handed him over. One of his closest handed him over. He's not the Messiah. And so Matthew shows. Even Judas confessed this is innocent blood. He's done nothing wrong. He also uses the reference to the field of blood. Matthew's audience could have went outside and seen the field of blood and asked, why is this field called the field of blood? Well, you don't know the story. Judas hanged himself and... and Putting scripture together, more than likely hung there till his body swelled up and rotted and fell, and his body burst open and his guts poured out in this field, and so it's called the field of blood. More testimony to the the truthfulness of Matthew's claim that Christ is the Messiah. Yeah. Now I want to use this today again for for comparing and contrasting these two men. Let's compare them first. They had both spent a lot of time with Jesus. Probably about the same amount of time under the ministry of Jesus. They had heard all of His teachings that were preached publicly. And they had heard the teachings that He kept. The, the special content they gave to His disciples behind closed doors. They saw all of His miracles. They each had a share in the apostolic ministry. They both preached. They both cast out demons and healed the sick. They both then at the end of their ministry committed heinous sins against the very Christ that they had followed. Both of them. 
They both, as we've seen, display a very clear remorse for their sin. We see that in Peter's tears. He weeps bitterly. We see that in Judas, in, in all that he does, trying to take it back, undo it, and then committing suicide. They are both remorseful. They both had curses upon them. Peter self-pronounced, self-invoked curses. Judas, from the psalmist in the mouth of God, they were both clearly foretold beforehand what would happen. Both of them. Yeah. Now, let's look at the contrast. Judas changed his mind and tried to undo what he had done. Judas confessed his sin publicly. I have sinned. Mm -hmm. Judas declared the innocence of Jesus publicly before the religious officials. Judas's guilt led him to take extreme measures to display his remorse, even to the point of death. We don't see any of this in Peter. With regard to the foretelling of their sins, one was foretold with a promise, the other was foretold with a warning. Remember Peter in Luke 22. Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. That's a promise. That your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, that's a promise. Strengthen your brothers. Remember, Ben told us, he, Christ comes in kindness and tenderness and gives promises. And we can almost see an exact parallel with Job. Satan comes and says, I want to have them all. And he says, have you considered my servant Peter? I've got big things for him. But he needs to be brought low. But Peter, I've prayed for you. We see the promise of the intercession of Christ for Peter. A promise. But with Judas, chapter 26, verse 23, Jesus said, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. That's a pronunciation of a, of a curse. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. He tells him beforehand, Woe, curses are going to come upon this man. Curses from God. It's coming. And he warns him. So what we have in comparing these two men are really examples, individual examples of Christ dealing with men the way that God has always dealt with men. He reveals Himself. He states very clearly what is expected. He lays out promises. He lays out warnings. And then the men are responsible to act in accord with God's commands. They are responsible to obey. And this story even takes us to that next step. Both men had a revelation of Christ. Both men saw these promises and warnings. Both Peter and Judas failed in their obedience. So then how do they respond? They realize they've sinned. They realize they must take some action. But they respond in very different ways. And that's where we begin to see the difference in these two men. In the way that they respond to already committed sins. Now to make use of this, we want to look at their, their actions, how they responded. We can consider that the fruit. Yeah. That fruit is growing from roots yeah. that have caused these men to be different from the very beginning. The fruit or their actions that follow their sin are both examples of a repentance, a kind of repentance. One is true repentance, one is false repentance. One or both were obviously affected by the reality of their sin. We see that in their actions. Both of them had a change of mind as they realized that they've sinned. Both of them act on that change of mind. Peter went out and wept bitterly. Judas goes and hangs himself. One of them is in heaven. One of them is in hell. What's the difference? What makes the difference in these men? 
It's what our confession refers to in chapter 15 as saving repentance. Or the Baptist Catechism refers to as repentance unto life. There is a repentance that leads to death. And there is a repentance that leads to life. And we see these men exemplifying one of each. So now turn to 2 Corinthians 7. And I'll read it again. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Now notice, repentance follows on the coattails of grief, of sorrow, of feeling bad. We, we could call that remorse. Repentance follows on the coattails of grief. So stage one of repentance is, I feel grief over something I've done, over a present situation, an action, a sin. I, I feel bad about the way things turned out. Yeah. There's grief. That's not repentance. Yeah. There is a godly grief... And there is a worldly grief or a grief that is of the world. The world's kind of grief. There is Christian grieving and there is non-Christian grieving. Lost people grieve over their sin. Lost people feel bad about sin. They do something they shouldn't do and they immediately feel bad about it. That's not repentance. But Christian grieving, what Paul calls... Godly grief leads to a repentance that leads to salvation. Not regeneration or justification, but, a, but, a, but salvation as a whole. Whereas non-Christian grieving, what he refers to as worldly grief, leads to death. Now what is death in the Bible? It's not just physical death, remember. It is alienation from God. Alienation cut off from the life of God. That's death, whether it's physical or spiritual or eternal. It's being cut off from God. Now compare that to what Paul says in Acts chapter 20, verse 21, when he says that he testified both to Jews and to Greeks repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. That's the difference in Christian grieving and non-Christian grieving. The Christian feels bad for their sin, and that will lead to a turning toward God, toward the life of God. Whereas non-Christian grieving over sin leads to death, leads to running away from God. I feel bad for my sin. I've got to get away from God. Or very often the, the representatives of God, His people. I've got to get away from these Christians because they're making me feel bad about how I live and how I act and how I speak. Whatever the case may be, a Bible verse you read in Scripture that reveals something and you feel bad about your sin and so you shut it. I can't have any more of that. It's, it's Worldly grief pushes away from God whereas godly grief brings the person to God. In true and saving repentance. Now bring that back to Peter and Judas. Judas realizes that he has sinned. That's the situation he finds himself in. He sees that Jesus is condemned and he says, Whoa, I wasn't expecting that. I thought maybe they would take him in, ask him a few questions and let him go. I did not think that they were going to kill him. I didn't mean any harm by it. Now that he's condemned, we got to undo this. I've sinned. And he grieves over it. He's obviously grieved over it. But what does that grief produce? Does it push him away from God or toward God? Toward life or away from life? Well, we see it in actual historical narrative. It literally pushes him to death. He dies. He despairs of life itself. Judas exemplifies what is really... 
the, the underlying principle of worldly grief. Because the people, people who are not Christians, they will sin and they will feel bad about it. And the first thing in their mind is, after I need to get away from whatever this is that's making me feel this way, is self-atonement. Maybe if I die, I can make this better. Self-condemnation, self-loathing, that's going to make it better. If I could just feel bad enough about it, that'll fix the problem here for Judas. Maybe if I give my life, it'll show that I'm really remorseful. You can't atone for your sins. But Judas gives us an example of self-atonement of false repentance. Judas was grieved. But his grief did not lead to a true and saving repentance. And his grief is not repentance. Grief is not repentance. Remorse is not repentance. He attempted external self-reformation. But self-reformation is not repentance. He acted in self-condemnation and self-loathing. But that's not repentance. Now look at Peter. Matthew doesn't tell us any more about Peter. He, he runs out and he weeps bitterly. We don't see any more of Peter's strong, self-confident arrogance or boasting. And maybe, maybe for Matthew he thought that the silence would speak louder than words. And so he just leaves it at that. We, we don't see any effort from Peter to try to prove himself or, or make it up. Even in the other Gospels, he doesn't make any attempt to make reparations. He's just grieved. But which grief is it? That's the question. And it's found in what it produces. Does he go away from God or toward God? Well, on resurrection morning, news comes to the disciples that the, the grave is empty. And we read in John chapter 20, So Peter went out with the other disciple. That's how John talks about himself. So you picture... These two men who were there when Jesus, when Peter denied Jesus. And they're, they're, they're buddies and they're hanging out together again. And so they both run. They were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. But he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. Just a little example, a little picture of, of what's happening in Peter's mind. In John 21, they're out fishing and Jesus is on the beach and the disciple says, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John again, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard it, was the Lord. He put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. Amen. He just wants to be with his Lord. That's, that's all it is. All we see of Peter in the Gospels is a coming to Christ. Coming to Christ. That's what it is. It's just, I just got to be near him. It doesn't push him away from Christ. It draws him to his Lord. That's an example of true repentance. He's grieved and what can you do? You can't make reparations. You can't self-atone. You can't fix it. There's nothing you can do except get near to the one who can do all of that. I just want to be with my Lord. It flowed, over, it flowed out of true grief over his sin. But he doesn't have to show himself or make a, a, a boastful display of his grief, his repentance. He doesn't act in self-condemnation or even self-commendation. Lord, I know I, I betrayed you and all and you looked at me and I looked at you and we... You know, there was that whole thing where you kind of thought, I told you so. And you did tell me so. And look, I, I want you to know that if you'll give me a second chance, here's what I'll do. I'll, I'll shepherd your sheep for you. That's not what happens. Jesus comes to him. And he throws himself into the water. Because true repentance draws the penitent man into the presence of Christ because he knows that only there is found atonement for sins and acceptance with God. I just got to be with my Lord. Amen. Now, that's all the fruit. What are the roots of these different kinds of repentance? One flows from the grief of the world. 
Let me describe to you the grief of the world. People in the world who are lost, they sin and they feel bad. Why? Well, they've got their heart set on earthly things. Their eyes are full of earthly things. All they can see is horizontal. And so they can look at a sin and say, oh, I've hurt such, such so-and-so's feelings. Oh, this, this sin is producing this kind of consequence, and that's not good. I should change that. Everything is temporal. All of the consequences are temporal. And, and in their grief, they only care about the temporal, making it right here. That's the first thing in their mind. What are people going to think? How is this going to affect this situation or that situation? And even if they would publicly confess, like Judas, it's just before men. Public confession before men of sin is not repentance. But the other flows from godly grief. Where do we get godly grief? It's, it's from a heart that is set on heavenly things. Spiritual sight that sees every sin as an offense against God. A heart that cares only to be at peace with God in Christ. I don't care what men think about my sin. That's not what matters. What matters is what my God thinks. I think it was Spurgeon who said a man who has truly repented, you could write his sins in the sky. He doesn't care. All he cares about is whether he's been reconciled to his God. Peter's repentance is rooted in Christ's intercession. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. You're one of mine, Peter. That's, that's the root. The, the difference is Christ. In Mark's Gospel, the very last reference to Peter is from the words of an angel. When they find the angel at the empty tomb in Mark 16, 7, the angel says, But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Think about that. I had some, some good time this week over that phrase. This angel is a messenger from Christ, obviously, and so he's telling him what to say. Tell the disciples and Peter. You've got to say Peter. Make sure you say Peter's name. Say Peter so that he knows, Peter, I expect you to be in Galilee because you're mine. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I've got a job for you, so make sure you say, Peter, I believe there's more mercy and grace and tenderness and compassion in those two words and Peter than we will understand for all of eternity. We will be searching to understand that mercy. Simon, Simon. I have prayed for you. Tell the disciples and Peter. And if you read John's gospel, it just gets better and better. Peter's repentance is evidenced by a changed life. Not a hopeless despair of life. We go on to read in John's gospel, Christ comes to him and he commissions Peter to be a shepherd of his own sheep. He promises him... A martyr's death. Now we don't... We, we would read that as a warning. But it's a promise. When you are old, someone will take you and they'll dress you where you don't want to go. Yeah. What, that's, what Christ is saying there is, you're, you're mine till death, Peter. Yeah. Till the very end, you're mine. And I'm going to be with you all the way to that upside down cross and you're going to know it. He promises that he will be with him. At Pentecost, Peter is the one who stands up and preaches. And thousands are brought into the kingdom. Later on in the book of Acts, Peter and John are arrested. And they have to stand before many. And I would imagine that John is thinking, I really hope Peter has got a little more backbone than he had before. And, and they say together, we cannot but speak in the name of Christ. I can't say anything other than, we can't speak of anything other than what we've seen and heard. Christ, Christ, I can't say anything else. If you want me to be silent, I, I can't. He can only speak of Christ. God gives these warnings, but God also gives promises. What's the difference in these men? It's the promise of God. Every promise of God is yes in Christ. Christ is the difference. They go back to Deuteronomy chapter 29. Moses had told them, he said, But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand, or eyes to see, or ears to hear. 
And in the next chapter, there's a promise. And the Lord God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. That's a promise of regeneration. That's a promise of the new covenant sealed in the blood of Christ. The difference, the reason why Judas responded one way and Peter responded another way is Christ. It's Christ's work, His work of atonement, His work of intercession, all of it achieving regeneration for Peter and his circumcised heart so that he comes back. The difference is Christ. It's the work of God in Christ which secures evangelical repentance unto life. Romans 2.4 Paul says, Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It's His kindness. It's the Simon Simon that leads to repentance. It's the, the patience and forbearance of God in Christ that is the root of all repentance. It's God's kindness. God in the heart drawing His people to Himself. Now hopefully, it goes without saying, there is no salvation separated from repentance. There is no salvation without repentance. When they came to Peter and they said, what must we do? He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you. Jesus himself says, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Here, except you repent, you shall perish like Judas. Your repentance is of eternal significance, a, a turning from sin and unto God. We all find ourselves sinners from birth. We are responsible for how we deal with that sin, what we do with it. We can hold on to it and just give lip service to repentance. I feel bad. I shouldn't have done that. I know I could do better. Or we turn from it completely and turn to God. If you're a Christian, examine your repentance. Repentance is not something that we just did one time. Yeah. I repented. It's, it's, we must repent. And then we, our, our entire life is then characterized by a heart and a mind that is constantly turning from sin and to God. Every day, that's a part of mortification of our sin is repenting of it, turning from it. So if you're a Christian... Examine your thoughts. When you think about just sin in general, if somebody says the S word, S-I-N, what comes into your mind? Are you repulsed by the idea of the transgression of God's law? That's good. That's not repentance. Why are you repulsed? That's, that's the answer. When you're tempted to sin and you, you kind of flinch from it, I, 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 shouldn't, I shouldn't do that. That's not repentance. Why do you feel that way? And what, what are you turning to? It's easy for us to say, well, I'm tur I've turned from sin or, or sin gives me these thoughts simply because in our culture, certain things are looked down upon. Mm -hmm. So that's the way we think. But that's not repentance. Right. It's easy to look down on certain sins because, well, what would my church family think of me? What, what would my wife, my husband, what would they think of me if, if they knew that I did this? And, but that's not repentance. That's not repentance unto life. When you ha have actually committed a sin and you feel the grief over that sin, examine that grief. Why am I grieved? Is it because I'm just immediately struck by the feeling that what if other people found out what I've just done? Or is it grief because... I live every day before the face of God and He has watched me throughout this entire process of the, the, the desires of my own heart being lured and enticed. And rather than, than putting that to death and clinging to Christ, I fed it a little bit and then I engaged in a sinful activity and He's watched the entire process. He knows every thought about it. And that sin has put a, a, a clamp on the 
line of my communion with my God. That's why we turn from sin. Because being in the presence of God through Christ is more important to us than our next breath. So when we sin, we recognize that's going to stiffen my communion with God. And I want it gone. I don't want that. I want clear, open communion with God. And so we, we have to examine our repentance all the time to make sure that our, our minds are set on heavenly things. That the reason that we are repulsed by sin is because of its stench in the nostrils of God. Perhaps you're not a Christian. Then for you, the answer is repent and believe the gospel. You can't self-atone. You cannot make any atonement for your sins. You you can be cast into hell where for all eternity you will be paying in a sense, but it will never be finished. It's never done. Repentance is not grief or remorse. It's not feeling bad because you've sinned. Repentance is not self-condemnation, self-loathing. Self-reformation. I'm going to try to do better now. I'm I'm really going to try to do better now. That's not repentance. Public and private confession. We live in a culture where it's, it's not appropriate. It's, it's sort of looked down upon, upon for people to actually come out and admit they were wrong. Now in response to that... In, in a Christian subculture, we can begin to think that because we're going a little bit further than those who are godless, that that's actually Christian. And so we say, I've done wrong. And we think that does anything. That doesn't do anything. Public and private confession, especially, I, I see this as a problem with, with men, especially. I've done wrong. You're, you're right. It's my fault. I take full responsibility. Here. Pat my back. I take full responsibility. That's not repentance. That doesn't do anything. Until you're changing your actions because of the work of God's Spirit in your heart because you realize that your sin is a stench to God and it will take you to hell if you do not repent of it. It's not. It doesn't do any good. Self-reformation... Public and private confession, these are not repentance. If you're not a Christian, repent of your sin. Turn to God. I've taken the definition, sort of made it a little bit personal from the catechism. True repentance that leads to life is a saving grace given by God by which you, the sinner, Out of a true sense of your sins. That must be there. There must be some kind of grief. And a true apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. That's the other point. With grief and hatred of your sin. You've got to have that. Turn from sin. You've got to have that. But to God. Turn to God. Fully intent to labor. You must labor. But by His power. After new obedience. It is God working in and through every step. He gives it. He guides through it. And He draws you out on the other side of it. Christian repentance. True saving repentance. Repentance unto life. It is a grace from God. It's rooted in the atoning work of Christ. It results, or is resultant from a changed heart. It reckons all sin as putrid. It regards specific sins as deadly. True Christian repentance never says, well, good thing I'm saved and I can't lose it. That's not the way a Christian speaks. True repentance is not to keep up a reputation or save face. It's not to earn salvation. It is because I recognize my sin is opposed to God. And my God is opposed to my sin. And I can't have that. I must have nearness. I must have communion with God. And because sin is seen as a detriment to that relationship, you turn from it. You don't want any of it. 
So we have to examine our repentance. If you're not a Christian, you've never repented. Not even for the first time. If you're not a Christian, today is the day to repent for the first time and cast yourself upon the Christ who can and has atoned for sins. Amen. Let's pray. Well, if you've ever repented, you know that it's a gift, it's a blessing. And it's a blessing annexed to the new covenant. When Christ sealed that covenant, it guaranteed repentance. It guaranteed that there would be some people, somebody, somewhere, until the end of the age, there would always be somebody repenting and turning from sin. If ever, if you've ever felt that, if you've ever recognized that, then the Lord's Supper is a time when you get to celebrate and remember what it was that bought that for you, that bought the new heart, and it was the blood of Christ. If you've ever been able to look back at sins, once overpowering, and look now and say, I'm not overpowered. It's because Christ bled and died to win that grace for you. So let's think on Christ, give our attention to His cross, His blood, and then we'll, we'll come to His table together.